So our speaker tonight, as we have mentioned, is Stephen Towler. He has been a Buddhist for over 50 years and is a Dharma group facilitator at Wat Dharma Yanaram, managed by the Cambodian Buddhist Society in Kelmscourt. Stephen spent seven reigns as a monk in the Thai forest tradition. He learned from teachers including Ajahn Fan, Ajahn Bien, and Ajahn Tate. Stephen has skillfully translated texts from teachers such as Longpo Tate, Longpo Mahaboa, and Ajahn Park. Please correct my name translation from Thai to English. Piek, okay, Ajahn Piek. And um, interestingly, Bill has noted today that Stephen has been awarded lifetime membership of the BSWA, not once but twice. And this lifetime membership has lapsed, not once but twice. Interesting days. And uh, Stephen was also the first resident monk in Magnolia Street, Vihara. So we're looking forward to his recollections of our early days. Thank you, Stephen, for coming to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the BSWA. So, <clears throat> given that it is the 50th anniversary, I thought before we do our guided meditation that I'd share some recollections of the early days of the Buddhist society. Because when you look around at how it's developed, since those days of nothing, it's actually come quite a long way in that 50 years. I first heard about the notion of a Buddhist society in WA back in 1971, before it was, <coughs> before it was even incorporated. Back then, uh, I was thinking of ordaining in Thailand and there was an English monk, Venerable Kantipalo, who had been sick, living in, he'd been living in Thailand and he'd been sick and so went back to the UK to recuperate. And that summer, in 1971, he was staying in Somerset with some friends of friends. And it just so happened that an Australian wanted to make the journey down to Somerset with myself to see Antipalo because that person was a Buddhist and didn't know really what to do. They found themselves sort of um, nowhere to go locally and that was Don Casson. Don's dead now, he died a few years ago but uh, we spent, he and I spent a long weekend with Kantipalo 
Um, and he discussed the idea of maybe forming a Buddhist society. And that's one of the things that he wanted to get advice from Kanchipala for, to understand what's the best way to go about doing it. And Kanchipala's advice was basically that if you find, if you can form a Buddhist society and get people interested and get a place for monks to stay, then monks will come and Buddhism will flourish. And then we went our separate ways. Obviously Don came back to uh, Western Australia. And at that time, Maureen and Richard Barton, I think were members of the Theosophical Society and Don knew them through there. And between the three of them, they uh, sort of formed a nucleus of, uh, of people interested in in the Dhamma. And eventually, uh, obviously, the Buddhist society became incorporated. And I think I'm right in saying that Don was the very first president of the Buddhist society, because by then I really wasn't having much to do with it, because I was actually, uh, I ordained in 1972, first as a novice. And then just before that pansar, that rains retreat, I ordained as a monk. Um, but while I stayed in Thailand, the Buddhist society was forming a small nucleus of people here in Western Australia. And in 1976, one of those people who'd been involved here and had also traveled to Thailand and met up with Ajahn Phan was a gentleman called Eddie Tan. He was Singaporean, but he had a house here in Dalkeith, 100 Victoria Avenue. And his son Seng lived here because Seng was studying at the University of Western Australia. And Eddie invited Ajahn Tet, who was my teacher at the time, to come to WA. And we came via Singapore, Indonesia, into Western Australia, over to Victoria, up to New South Wales, Canberra, then back through Singapore, up to Thailand. And in that time, we stayed at Eddie's house at 100 Victoria Avenue and Ajahn Tet had or gave talks every, every night that we stayed here. We stayed probably for about five or six nights, not that long. And my job was interpreter. So Tanachan would give a talk and I would um, interpret from Thai, to uh, from Thai to English. But at that time, many of the core members of the Buddhist society uh, came to listen to, uh, to Tanachan speak. And there were people like uh, Des McDade, uh, people like Lynn Jackson, uh, Lindsay Donald Hill, um, and a number of others. And at that time, the 
president was Professor Jaya Surya, who was a professor at UWA. Then later on, Warren and Karen, oh, actually Warren and Karen Smales also came to those meetings as well. And later on, Warren and Karen ran the Buddhist Society. And certainly in 1978, when I came to stay here after I'd had um, severe bouts of malaria, I came, Lynn Jackson and her then husband invited me to uh, come and uh, recuperate in WA, which I did. And uh, they realized, the, the members of the Buddhist Society realized that if they were going to have monks come and stay, then they needed a place to house them. So they set about uh, raising funds. And they raised funds primarily for having international dinners. In other words, they would invite the, uh, the Buddhist community from various countries Sri Lankan, Burmese, Thai, Indian, and they would invite them to prepare meals. And I think it was the Celtic Club in Western Australia, uh, in West Perth, I should say, that they used to meet. And uh, uh, they would sell tickets to raise money, to raise a, mo a mortgage to buy somewhere where monks could stay. And they raised a certain amount of money, but still the terms of the loan that they were being offered from the bank weren't very satisfactory. So a gentleman um, uh, who is Burmese, um, John Peters, he worked for the bank at the t for a bank at the time, so he negotiated a better deal. And from that, uh, the house in Magnolia Street in North Perth was purchased. And that's where I resided for a few months while I was recovering from malaria. And Venerable Kanki Barlow stayed there for a few days. But that was really the, that was really the start of having monastics come and stay in Perth. And then probably 12 months after I left, I'm not quite sure how long, um, uh, Ajahn Jagaro came to stay. And uh, the rest is what they say is history. So I take that indulgence because it's 50 years and I think it's important to recognize that lots of people came before us. Lots of people made a lot of sacrifices to develop Buddhism in WA, they could have done nothing. They could have just simply practiced themselves, but they chose to organize, and not just organize, but organize in a way which allowed them to uh, flourish. They took the advice from Venerable Kantipalo, found a place where monks could stay, and monks have come. And now we're fortunate enough to have a wonderful abbot in Ajahn Brahm. And of course Ajahn Brahm is very successful in his teachings, very popular. And so we've taken the Buddhist society in that 50 years from nothing to something which is uh, quite substantial. 
very, very well regarded and uh, now attracts people from right, not just Western Australia, but from around the world. People come to ordain with Ajahn Brahm. And that's all because back in 50 years ago, people like Maureen and Richard Barton, Don Casson, had a thought that perhaps they could organize and develop a Buddhist society. And so they did. And we should give thanks to them because it's on their shoulders that we've built what we've got today. So, Satu to them. <coughs> so, guided meditation. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've got 30 minutes. Just feel yourself sitting on the chair or on the floor. Just have a general feeling of your own posture. Feel comfortable, move around a little bit if you have to. the powers which we develop to help us practice is faith in Pali Sattva. So sometimes it's good for those who are Buddhist before they start their meditation to just recollect the Buddha the Dhamma and the Sangha, or just the Buddha. Say to yourself, Buddho, Tammo Sangho, or Natmo Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato Samma Sambuddhokha. Because it's faith in the Buddha, in his teachings, and those Arahant followers of the Buddha, those enlightened ones. They should act as our inspiration. So if we tune into respect for the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, then it sets us up to practice our own meditation subject.
So if you already have your own meditation subject, then just focus your attention on that subject. Don't worry about listening to me. My voice, just treat it as sound. But if you don't have a meditation subject or you just want to follow my advice, then I'll guide you through the most common meditation subject. Just watching the breath. So, with your eyes closed, focus your attention on the tip of your nostril or your upper lip. Gaze on that area as if you had your eyes open. Just focus on that spot. Wherever you feel the breath come in and go out, place your attention there while still trying to maintain that focus and just in front of the nose or just in front of the upper lip and watch the breath Observe the breath come in and go out. Come in and go out. Wherever that feeling, that sensation occurs, just Focus your attention there. Watch it. Just observe there. Feel your physical body start to relax as you try and sustain your attention. Let all your physical activities sink. Breath in, breath out. Breath in, breath out. As your breath gets shallower, and shallower. Feel yourself just relaxing. If your mind drifts, simply note 
that the mind has drifted and bring it back to the in and out breath. Breath in, breath out. you observe the breath may the breath get shallower and shallower feel not only your bodily sensations calming down but also your thoughts feel your mental activity slowing down Keep your mind observing the breath. Just watch the breath come in and go out. And as that stillness arises, if the breath disappears, don't worry about it. Just stay focused on that stillness, on that quiet tranquility. And just let your mind sink into that tranquility. Breath in. Once that tranquility is established, don't go looking for the breath. It's done its job. Just enjoy the tranquility.
come to its end for our meditation. Let us take the hour or time to open your eyes. Feel your bodily sensations coming back to normal. So, what shall we talk about? I have to say that if you come expecting to um, hear uh, talks about the suttas, then you've come to the wrong place. Um, well, I, uh, <coughs> I've obviously read some of the Sutta Pitika. I'm not a scholar. I don't profess to be a scholar. And my teachers are all practical um, teachers, if you like. So I'm interested in the practice of Dhamma. I'm interested in the things which we have to do to make use of Dhamma. Dhamma only has one purpose. Dhamma being the teachings of the Buddha. There are many meanings of the word Dhamma, but in this case I'm referring to uh, the teachings of the Lord Buddha. And the purpose of Dhamma is simply to provide a way to be free from suffering. It has no other purpose. It's not to be sold, like goods in the marketplace. Its intrinsic value is beyond money. It's beyond any kind of wealth. <coughs> it's there to help beings that are trapped in samsara, the round of birth, old age, sickness, death and rebirth, time and time again. And the Lord Buddha taught Dhamma out of compassion. Because after he himself had freed himself from suffering, he looked around and thought, is there anyone who could actually understand what has just happened to me? And fortunately, he came to the conclusion that there were those beings in the world who could understand if he only taught them. So that's what he set out to do. And that's what the teachings of Dhamma are all about. They're there for those people 
who want to be free from suffering. Dhamma is a way of practice. It's a way of life which takes us in the opposite direction to the way of the conventional world. Swimming upstream, as it were. The conventional world is full of greed, hatred and delusion, full of defilement, Dhamma, on the other hand, <coughs> is the medicine that cures the sickness of greed, cures the sickness of ill will, the sickness of delusion. It's a medicine which has been well applied for over two and a half thousand years. And it's still just as relevant today as it was back then. Even though the conventional world has changed, the reality of existence hasn't. Old age, sickness and death are just as prevalent today as they were two and a half thousand years ago. So we don't have to change Dhamma, we don't have to change what we teach, we don't have to change what we practice to keep pace with the conventional world. Now I've heard people say, oh we should modernise, Buddhism should keep up with modern times. But do you know what keeps up with modern times? Greed, hatred and delusion, ignorance. The things which drive the conventional world, they just get smarter. When we sit in meditation, we have difficulty making our minds concentrated because our minds go here, they go there. We have all sorts of things on our mind. And all that is driven by discontent. Telechantet used to say all defilements are driven by discontentment. Because if we were truly satisfied with our meditation subject, the mind would rest there. But instead it wants to have a bet each way. It wants to maybe think that there's something else that it should be focusing its attention on. That maybe it's missing out on something to listen to, something to think about, something to imagine. And so, mm, maybe I'll just let go of that meditation subject and just check out and see what else is happening within the mind. And then when it finds something that it likes better, some thought or other, it's off, gone. And then we have to bring mindfulness into play to understand that the mind has drifted and bring it back to its meditation subject. And the key here is mindfulness. If we practice Dhamma at any level, we have to practice with mindfulness. Mindfulness is, is a key to development. But mindfulness itself has to have a foundation. In the West, you have now 
mindfulness gurus who teach mindfulness that it's the you know elixir if you like or the the uh, the uh, the panacea for stress and all sorts of ailments and mindfulness can be that but it itself relies on having a firm foundation a foundation which the Buddha explained as being dana and sila generosity and virtue and mindfulness gurus teach mindfulness in isolation and while that may bring some success to the practitioners who look for mindfulness to relieve themselves of everyday stress it won't work because they get stressful again because mindfulness has not got the right foundation so it, it's not in itself a way to be free from suffering it relies on other things other phenomena it relies on having wisdom it relies on having concentration so while mindfulness is really important in isolation it's just a tool it in itself doesn't lead to freedom from suffering but unless we're mindful we can't understand the way the mind works so we when we practice meditation we practice to learn how to harness mindfulness so that we can slow the mind down make it concentrated and when it's concentrated it can focus its attention on those things that are important not the way that of the world not thinking about where I'm going to go on holiday not thinking about what I've got to do tomorrow but thinking about the present because it's only in the present moment that we can affect any change in our lives the past is gone the past is only just a memory that's all it is you can't go back in the past and change it and the future is yet to come so the only real time the only time that time is real is here in the present and this is where we can affect change this is where we can affect um, a change in direction from taking up the normal view of the world the conventional world and changing it into a view which is Dhamma we can change from being an ill-tempered person to a mild-tempered person we can change from being a greedy person to a generous person but we can only do that in the present moment and if we're going to do that then we need a firm foundation of basics so being generous not just giving to monks not just giving money not just giving food giving time and giving it to other people people who are deserving of generosity and there's a sutta uh, 
where the Buddha explains what the different levels of merit that are, that are made by giving, by practicing morality, and by starting to practice your meditation. And how that merit increases exponentially, depending as to which acts you perform. But giving an appropriate gift to an appropriate person at the appropriate time is good practice. Not only does it make merit, it helps spread the, um, goodwill. Because people tend to respond positively when you're positive and you give. You give of your time, you give of your money, or you give food or whatever it is and generally speaking people are positive towards that and why why is that useful because the world is driven by i it's driven by me mine what i want this belongs to me that belongs to me all that's driven by greed hatred delusion ignorance wanting and attachment. When we're attached to all of these things, we suffer. If we're going to practice Dhamma, and I said at the beginning, we practice Dhamma to be free from suffering. So the last thing we want to do is to go grasping hold of things because that in itself causes suffering. Suffering, the Four Noble Truths, suffering is caused by craving by wanting but craving also co causes attachment so suffering and attachment go hand in hand giving helps to break attachment it helps to break that cycle of me and mine uh, instead of thinking of what I want you start to think of what others want and you make those gifts appropriate you don't go and give bottle of whiskey to a monk it's not appropriate and you could say well that was giving yes but it's not intelligent giving you have to have appropriate gifts given at an appropriate time but it does break down this idea of me and mine and that's the whole idea of becoming generous and if you can't do anything else then at least you can develop some sort of goodwill and generosity towards your fellow human beings. Morality, virtue, in Pali we call it sila. There are different levels of morality, different levels, different number of precepts. Precepts are like policies. In the corporate world we would say we have a policy of not killing things. We have a policy of uh, not stealing. Or we have a policy of uh, not uh, being sexually promiscuous. And the same with telling lies. And the same with taking intoxicants. It sounds easy. It sounds clear that with those five precepts which lay people observe seem to be fairly succinct. Novices take ten precepts, and sometimes lay people take eight. 227 for monks. 
But regardless of the number of precepts that one observes, one has to observe them and use mindfulness in their application. Because while one might say that not killing, abstaining from killing, that's the precept we take when we become lay people. We abstain from killing. Killing what? It's actually not very clearly defined in the suttas as to exactly what a living sentient being is. In the commentaries it says that anything that is smaller than the size of a bedbug's egg is not considered to be a sentient being. But there are, um, I guess, grey areas. So we take antibiotics all the time. We kill off bacteria. Are bacteria sentient beings? Well, according to that definition, no, they're not. Sentient beings being something that is born, has consciousness and dies. What about parasites? I had malaria. I had two parasites in my blood at the same time. <coughs> I had the, the parasite which causes you to have a very high temperature every single day and the same parasite, or a, di a different version of the parasite, which gives you a very high temperature every second day. So every second day I had a double dose and I was taking anti-malaria tablets. But malaria is a parasite. We know that now, back in the days of the Buddha, we didn't. But why wouldn't I take medication? And what was the purpose of the medication? The purpose of the medication was to make me well. So my intention in taking the, the medication was to make me well. I didn't take it with the intention of killing anything, even though that was the result. And here's where it's really important. Intention or volition is what creates karma. So how we respond to the outside world is really important. And we can't respond positively to the outside world in a wholesome way unless we have mindfulness. Because typically we respond with a knee-jerk conventional response. When we see things we don't like, anger arises. When we see things that we really like, then greed, avarice, jealousy, envy arise. They're defilements and they lead to more rebirth. They lead to suffering. They lead to attachment. They lead to wanting. And we're trying to go in the opposite direction. So what we intend is really important. What happens if you lend your next door neighbour something and they don't give it back? Do you then look at something that they've got hanging around their house and think, well, I'm just going to take that as payment for... No, it's, all, it's okay, you know. Or you want to see a, you see a spider and you think, well, you know... No one likes spiders, do they? So, you know, let's put an end to it. 
What's your intention? If you drive your car and your intention is to kill as many insects on your windscreen as you possibly can, that's a poor outcome. Because we intend to do harm. We intend to harm other beings. If we get in our car with the intention of driving from A to B, even though insects may die on the way, or more than insects, because it's not our intention to do that, to kill, it's not our intention to harm, we wish all beings well, we have no ill will, no malice towards them, then their death is accidental. We don't create karma. So it's, it's important for us to then be mindful, have sati, mindfulness, in applying ourselves to the outside world, in responding to sensual stimulation that come through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, even our own thoughts. Is it okay for us to flirt with someone at work or someone that we know, friends of ours? I mean, flirting is not sexual misconduct, is it really? Probably not. But it sets a frame of mind that one's not content with one's partner. It sets a frame of mind which is starting to lead to unhappiness. It's looking beyond the realms of what would be um, considered good practice in Dharma. Even though it seems innocuous because the actual physical action is not that strong, it creates a bad state of mind. So again, grey areas within what is, mind, what is um, considered to be virtuous and something for us to consider with wisdom and with mindfulness. And with mindfulness we can make sure our intention is good. And when our intention is not good, then we can, with mindfulness, we can catch ourselves, knowing that this is not a wholesome, a wholesome way of action, a wholesome way of thought, a wholesome way of speech. And when we can catch ourselves, then we can do the opposite. Then we can develop some wholesome characteristics so that we don't get caught up with ignorance, desire, attachment. Same with telling lies. It's only a white lie. Doesn't really matter. No one will notice. It'll be fine. Better to keep quiet. Better to keep quiet than mislead people. There is a. I've never actually, I've never actually found this passage in the suttas, um, but then again, I don't read them that much, um, and that's not because they're no good. Uh, obviously, <laughs> the whole of the dhammas in there, but really, if you want to learn dhamma, you have to learn here. Dhammas in here. You can read as much as you like. But if you're going to learn Dhamma, you have to learn about your body and mind. You have to learn about yourself. The whole of Dhamma can be experienced experience by simply observing the mind and the body. The whole of Dhamma can be understood by simply watching the in-breath come in and go out, come in and go out. You don't need to read all the books. 
You don't need to read all the suttas or understand them backwards or inside out. All you need to understand is what is happening here and now in the present in your own mind and body. So, there is a, there is a passage um, that I remember Kantipalo told me when one of the first things when I arrived in Bangkok and uh, was ready to ordain, one of the first things that uh, Kantipalo told me uh, about this passage in the, in the suttas where the Buddha was sitting under a tree and uh, he, had some lay, he had some followers there and he was teaching them Dharma and uh, um, a farmer came and uh, had an ox and he tied the ox to a, to a tree and, uh, and later on uh, one of his neighbours came along and took the ox and the Lord Buddha got up and left and went and sat somewhere else then later on the, the original farmer came back and he found his ox gone, stolen so he noticed that the Buddha was still there and so he went over, paid his respects and said, you know, um, I, uh, I had my ox over there. You didn't by any chance see it disappear, did you? And the Lord Buddha said, sitting here, I have seen nobody take that ox. Because he'd got up and moved. So he didn't tell a lie, but through his own power, he was able to see that there was bad karma between those two individuals and that by saying what had actually happened was only going to inflame that situation. So rather than tell a lie or remain silent, he just simply moved so that he could tell the truth, which was that sitting here, I have seen nobody take your ox. So there are, again, uh, it's a, a mindful approach so that we're cognizant of some of the things that we say because we make karma through body, through our actions, through our speech and through our thoughts. And so it's important to have mindfulness covering all of those aspects of, the, of our lives. Because if we don't have mindfulness, again, we can um, do things that end up being unwholesome. And that's not what we want to do. Same with intoxicants. Yeah, I'm drinks okay. I'll just have, you know just a nip just a nip well, just a nip often leads to one nip, two nips, three nips and then it starts to lead to intoxication so better not to have the first nip in the first place because intoxication is the opposite of mindfulness mindfulness means that we're sharp that we understand what's going on when we receive stimuli through the eye, the ear, the nose the tongue, the body, we can catch it and we can say, ah, this is an opportunity for defilement or an opportunity for a, for an wholesome, for a wholesome response. But if we're not mindful, typically we respond with our own defilements. We respond with greed, hatred and delusion, anger, jealousy, envy, all of these dark sides to our character they are normal because they've been growing inside of our heart for lifetimes thousands upon thousands of lifetimes and Dhamma is all about cleansing that muck out of our hearts and throwing it to one side 
and leaving the heart radiant and pure. So we don't want to countenance anything that will help bring defilement back. We want all that rubbish cleansed from our heart. And meditation helps us do that. But meditation needs to have a firm foundation. And it needs to have <coughs> generosity and morality coupled with mindfulness as that foundation. Then we develop samadhi. Samadhi is translated usually as concentration. Tamachantit used to say that there are basically two types of two types of, uh, uh, of samadhi. There's a type where we concentrate on our meditation subject, so we watch the breath come in and go out, and that's all that we do. We simply watch the breath, we observe the breath come in and go out, or we um, observe the body as being elements, or we observe the body as being loathsome, as being um, disgusting, as a corpse, as a rotting, festering corpse. And we simply have that view in our mind. That's becoming one-pointed on a meditation subject. And that leads to jhana, leads to some concentration, apana, jhana. The other form of meditation, and depending as to what your um, character is, depending as to what your personality is, you may not like to do that, simply focusing on uh, a meditation subject. The second way is to investigate. Take this body apart. See it as being elements or see it as being components. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. And look at it and see that it's actually just a construct. It's made up of external particles that are basically generated in supernova somewhere else in the universe. We're just elements, we're just oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon. And these elements come together and injected into that we have consciousness. And if we can see the components that make up our being, seeing that the components that make up the body, see that they're impermanent, see that they are suffering because we can't control them, see that they are not self, then we're starting to investigate. And the way that the mind develops when we investigate in this way is actually slightly different to what happens if we just simply concentrate on the meditation subject. Both can result in very strong concentration. Both can result in a situation where you no longer um, experience the outside world. You drop into a state which Tanachan, or, or let me say the Thai teachers, Thai forest teachers, teaches the Bawanga. And that's not a word that you will see very often in the suttas. Uh, you see it a lot in Abhidharma, but again, used in a slightly different way. And Bawanga is a state of, um, in this case, it's a state of stillness. But it, in, in Abhidharma, it refers to the flow of consciousness from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. It refers to the way that we receive stimuli, 
process that stimuli and they're conscious of that stimuli, wherever the sense organ is that we experience it through. But it's also a state. And if you practice jhana, if you practice strong absorption, you can experience a whole different set of experiences. It's like, um, almost like a dream, if you think of it in that way. You can have your own internal set of aggregates, of khandhas. You can see yourself doing all sorts of things, but you don't relate to the outside world. You don't relate to things that um, are experiencing around you. You can't hear anything, you can't see anything. But if you go into that state of bhavanga through um, samadhi, through investigation, then what tends to happen is that you just have a complete sense of stillness. There's no nimittas, there's no visions, there's no feeling of real joy, you just have pure equanimity. And it's that state, when you can get to that state, then you're now starting to have a platform to develop your meditation. Because then you start to understand what is the real mind and what is the counterfeit phony that we work with every day. The counterfeit mind, the phony, is the one that thinks, the one that feels. That's not the normal state of mind, but it is the normal state that we experience. The pure state of mind has none of those. The pure state of mind doesn't think. The pure state of mind is just complete neutrality. It neither likes nor dislikes. It is completely equanimous. And it's no, um, it's no accident that equanimity, or we use the word Pali in Pali, Upika, is the pinnacle of the factors of enlightenment and it's also the pinnacle of all of the perfections that um, you go through when you practice to become an Arahant, when you practice to become enlightened. Upika, equanimity, is O true equanimity is only experienced by those who are enlightened. But you get a glimpse of it when you practice and you develop strong samadhi, strong concentration. And that starts to get rid of some of these other yucky parts, the more subtle parts of, of our unclean hearts. And finally, to practice, to wind up, you need wisdom. We, you need wisdom to start because you need to have right view. If you don't have right view, you won't have right practice. You won't become a Buddhist in the first place, generally speaking. So you have to have right view, which in itself is an aspect of wisdom and right understanding or right thought, right consideration. They're the first two steps on the Eightfold Path. But then you also need to develop that further. You need to be able to go beyond conventional wisdom of thinking about things. You need to actually observe reality as it's happening moment by moment. And you can only do that when you have mindfulness. And you can only do that when your concentration is sharp enough. Because when moment by moment consciousness arises, it is so fast that um, 
most people never will ever see it. But they're the tools that you need because it's only when you catch things in the present moment that you can do something about them. And if you want to develop in a wholesome way, you must develop your mind to the stage where you have strong concentration and you can apply wisdom and see that all that arises passes away that attachment to those things that arise and pass away causes suffering. And all of those phenomena, all of them, they are all not self. They're all without substance. They're all empty. The Lord Buddha said, Sunyata Ilkang Alokasam, which is that the entire world is void. The entire world, he also said, um, which is basically the all Dhamma, everything comes from the heart. So if we're to understand the world, we have to understand the heart. We have to understand ourselves. We have to understand how we respond to the external world. We have to understand what's right, what's good, what's wholesome. And we have to practice of developing those qualities. And if we do that, then we too can follow the path of the Lord Buddha and we too can become free. Because at the moment, all of us who are Buddhist, we're still not on the path to enlightenment, but we're on the path that leads to the path to enlightenment. Because it's only when you actually put your foot on the, in the stream, if you like, become a stream enterer, that you can be sure of becoming enlightened. Up until then, we can all slip backwards. That's why it's important to develop in the present and make a commitment in the present because we're not sure what the future holds. It's unsure. So we all have a great opportunity. We've all come to the Dhamma. Don't lose that opportunity. Don't miss out because the experience that you have the exposure that you have is so rare that to miss out now and to forsake what you've got would be a tragedy. So I would encourage everyone to practice and everyone to develop their own mindfulness, be conscious of the actions that they take with body, speech and mind. And then we can make this part of the world a little bit nicer and a little bit brighter. And we can develop our own path towards freedom from suffering. So I encourage everyone to practice. Thank you. That's me finished. <laughs> I make it up as I go along. So <laughs> I never knew what I was going to talk about when I started. So every talk's different. Anybody got any questions? That was fairly wide ranging. Yeah. Uh, the precepts um, of the monks, and there's quite a few of them. How do they go about kind of managing, managing to kind of keep keep to those precepts? 
Sorry? Yeah, sorry, you, I think you were saying earlier that uh, monks have um, quite a few precepts. Yeah, 227, yeah. Yeah, how do they go about kind of, um, you know, following those? Because it seems like it's quite a few. Well, uh, I mean, when a monk ordains, he doesn't leave his defilements at the, at the door of the oppositor hall. He walks out with the same defilements as he walked in with. Um, but the, what he agrees to when he um, takes on the robe is that he will follow, um, or she will follow, those precepts. So they're there. The, the, the life of a monk, of a homeless person, if you like, is a life of simplicity. And so they learn very early on what those rules are. So they have to then be mindful that they, that they keep them. Um, so it's a, it's a way of life. And of course, when you're living in community, and, and bear in mind, when you become a monk, it's, it's suggested that you stay with, a, with your preceptor, the person who ordains you, for at least five years. And it's his job to teach you what the rules are. But when you live in a community, if you do something that's not right, someone will tell you. So uh, you go, uh, uh, mm, no, not right. And with monks, it's not just a case of having the training rules. There's something which we call korwak. So the, it's the way you do things, the way you wash your bowl. Not, there's no precept about that, but the way you wash your bowl, the way you hang your robes on the line, and a whole raft of, the, uh, of things, the way you sweep, when you sweep. And, the, and uh, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a whole load of other um, ways of practice, and they're all designed to make you mindful. When you hang your robes on, you don't just get you, you don't just get your, your robe and you just throw it over and then you know stick it out, get the peg and put it out, you know, and away you go. No, when you when you hang your robe out, the first thing you do is you rub your hand right down the length of the robe so that all the dirt comes off on your hand, right? And then you get your robe and you hang it from the back so that you don't throw it over and catch a branch of a tree or something like that. You put it over and drop it to the front, from back to front. Then you open it up, and then if you've got pegs or whatever, then you, you peg it out. And that's there. It becomes second nature. But it's there to help you be mindful. You don't wash your bowl hanging somewhere high up so in case it drops off. You know, we always used to wash our bowl on the floor so it couldn't fall over. And there are, so there are, there are not just the, the training rules... The, the monks observe, there's a whole pile of other practices all designed to make you mindful. Does that help? Good. Anybody else got any questions? Don't be shy. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for the speech. I wanted to um, know how can monks fulfill their livelihood? How can monks fulfill their livelihood? It's an interesting question because, like I said before, when, uh, when a person, whether it's a monk or a nun, ordains, all that they do is they commit to keep their precepts. They don't, they don't take a vow to become enlightened. They don't take a vow even to practice meditation, even though their upachaya will say to them, you know, go to the go to the foot of a tree or go into a cave and, uh, and to, to practice. And even though they get taught basic meditation in the time that they ordain, that to look at the body as being hair of the head, hair of the body, mouth, feet and skin. Um, 
that's a basic training and when the monks um, take ordination then they sort of commit to doing that but they don't commit to will they'll do whatever it takes to become enlightened and so all that you can expect of a good monk is that he will be keep his precepts he or she monks nuns will keep their precepts and if they do that and they do that well then they're worthy of respect if they don't do that then you have to think whether you actually want to support them or not if they break their precepts and there's been plenty of examples in Buddhist countries that monks have broke their precepts and then lay people don't support them but if they keep their precepts if, if, whether they practice meditation whether they do or don't um, whether they have strong mindfulness strong concentration lots of wisdom that's something that develops afterwards that's their own personal um, uh, um, decision whether they practice lots of monks study they learn the scriptures but they don't always practice them it's a, uh, very common in Buddhist countries because that's how that's how people got an education in the old days um, they couldn't get another education but so long as they practice their precepts then they're worthy of venerating because they practice more precepts than we do so their virtue is more solid if you like than ours but we can practice as many precepts as we like we can we can as lay people we don't have to ordain we could live we could learn the whole um, 227 rules of a, of, a, of a bhikkhu and practice all of them ourselves just because some it's it's better it's better though to be a good lay person than to be a horrible monk but good monks are worth venerating wherever they are but if you're a monk who breaks his precepts all the time especially if you break the major precepts then um, that's bad karma because when you're ordaining you're saying you're not going to do that you're committing to a way of life and lay people then support you give you food look after you provide medicines for you provide shelter for you so if you keep your precepts you're worthy of that support if you if you don't keep your precepts then you're getting that support under false pretenses and that's bad karma does that answer your question? Uh, it, it does, but I also wanted to know, so they, they, they don't want to be enlightened, the monks? Is that what you meant? There are monks that don't, uh, that, yeah, that, <laughs> that don't practice to be enlightened. I mean, you think there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of monks in Thailand alone. Um, they're not all there to be uh, enlightened. There are, there are traditions uh, in all Buddhist countries where monks practice more ardently than others. And a lots of them do a little bit of meditation. But generally speaking, you need to do quite a lot if you're going to be enlightened, unless you have very, very good merits from previous lives. It's very difficult. If the enlightenment was easy, we'd all be enlightened. Any more questions?
Okay, I'll try and be articulate with this question. <laughs> so, on the topic of turning points, so what, if it's not too personal, a question, on the, um, so, um, sorry, on the, the turning point, so what was the, what was the turning point for you? You talked a little bit about um, being generous, about the notion of self and I, and talked about the Dharma being in the heart. So what was the turning point for you to, from going, um, from, I think you used the, used the term construct, from shifting from, you know, a series of perceptions, these pictures of self, the constant eyeing to um, coming within to realise that, yeah, it's in the heart. Yeah, it is in it the heart. Because that's a real shift. You have to love Dhamma. Yeah. You have to love Dhamma. And that's a shift. But it's only when you realise that life is suffering and that the Lord Buddha taught the way to be free from suffering that you can have that shift. But the thing is, for me, and I think for a lot of other people as well, you have to see that as an example of somebody who practices that way and someone who sees the, who's you've seen the you've seen the results and you look at that person and I look at my teacher I think of Ajahn Tet and he's just wonderful I mean he just knew the Dharma inside out back to front he was just the most wonderful human being and when you see and you have an exa a, as an example that kind of person then it's easier or much easier to fall in love with the Dharma because you can see what the results are and if you don't have someone like that hard. It's hard in the West because you have so few people who you can look up to. I'm very lucky because I can recollect being with some wonderful people. Ajahn Fung. My, I first spent my first year with Ajahn Fung and everyone used to think he was like Father Christmas. But uh, he was just so jolly. He had just loving kindness. And, you know, he was just, just um, yeah, he, he exuded loving kindness. And uh, You just couldn't help but feel that there was, that there was something there, you know. And I uh, spent three years with Ajahn Tet, and he was just an amazing teacher. He, like I said, he knew Dharma inside out and back to front. He would talk about any aspect of Dharma at any time. And he was just, just a magnificent human being, just magnificent. And when you have people like that to inspire you, then you can then start to love the Dharma. And I think, for me, that's, you asked what was the turning point there, I think it's inspiration from the people who've gone before us. Does that help? <laughs> Might make you feel a bit sorry. <laughs> but yes, I would seek out people if you can find them. It's worth it. Thank you. I, I can see that you have deep love and reverence for those people. I do. Yeah. Yeah, you practice Dhamma to have 
for the love for the Dhamma is just so important because then you never give it away because then you see the value of it. Yeah. Any more? Okay. I've kept you here long enough. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, much for coming. If I've said anything that offends anyone, I ask for your forgiveness. Shall we give three sadhus for Stephen? Would you like to lead us in uh, paying respects to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha at the end, Stephen? Thank you.